So the name of the lecture is Healthy Soil, Healthy People. Um, that actually is the name that was given to a conference in Bangor, Maine two years ago, February, or about a year and a half ago now, uh, where Michael McNeil, who uh, is an agronomist uh, in Iowa, he spoke there and I also spoke. Uh, so it's not um, from my own making. I stole it from him. Healthy soil, healthy people. Before we talk about GMO and organic, though, I'd like to just take a minute and look at Christ's view of healthy soil and healthy people. And before we do, let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father, we're certainly thankful that you know all about us. You made us from the dirt. You breathed life into us. And you know how we work. And we know that you'll be with us here today. Guide our minds, guide our thoughts, bless and keep us. May we understand this topic better and your world better for having been here. And importantly, our mission as you explain it to us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus gave a parable some uh, 2,000 years ago about a sower that went forth to sow. And he scattered seed, the word of truth, and he scattered that um, in various grounds. Uh, the first was fell on the pathway, and the birds of the air snatched it away. Um, those represent, as you know, uh, the devil snatching the words of truth out of our hardened hearts, hardened by sin. Uh, secondly, the seed fell uh, on uh, stony ground. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, Christ gave a parable of just a few verses, and Ellen White spends 30 pages in Christ Object Lessons explaining the meaning, and she barely scratches the surface. But in that uh, wonderful chapter, the sower went forth to sow, she says, the stony ground, the stones in the ground is the selfishness of our hearts. And then the next soil that uh, Christ spoke about was the soil that I think afflicts uh, medical professionals the most, and that's the soil where the thorns are. And uh, Christ said it's the cares of this world uh, that, that just crowd out the gospel, and it's the uh, pleasures of this life. And uh, as medical professionals, we all have cares of this world. I, I, thought about that as I listened to Phil Mills talk this morning, and he showed that picture of that crowded waiting room. Have you ever had a waiting room like that? Yeah, mine's like that way too often. Now, I don't know if any of you are as, as uh, bad as I am, but often I get to the end of the day and I'm an hour behind. Has that ever happened to anybody? Yeah. You know, and I think, Lord, Shouldn't I be on time? I was so glad to realize that J. Iris thought that Christ was a little bit behind time. Because <laughs> uh, I've been right there uh, wondering what my patients were thinking. Sometimes we get, the, the good soil is ruined by the cares of this life. But the good news is, if you've got a hard surface for a heart, if you've got stony ground, if you've got the cares of this life, the plow of the gospel can change the soil of your heart. 
And I just pray that each of us as physicians, as dentists, as healthcare workers would remember healthy people begins with healthy soil and we want to have the gospel plow work in the soil of our own hearts. That's way more important than anything else I'll tell you today. Uh, because, you know, if, if we worry about all the food that we're eating, I love the, the passage in Ellen White's writings where she says, if you're afraid your food will hurt you, it most assuredly will. <clears throat> There's a lot of truth in that. But if we're all worried about the food we're eating and don't take time to allow our hearts to be purified by God's word and that, that soil turned over and the rocks cleaned out, uh, we're going to have real trouble. Uh, so don't lose sight of the most important soil, and that's the soil of the heart. Well, um, I'm going to talk to you about uh, organic and GMO and conventional uh, uh, methods of uh, crop uh, uh, growing, if you will, or raising of crops. You raise crops and you rear children, I'm told. Uh, I don't think that means the application of punishment to that part of the anatomy of the children, although in my house that happened. Uh, but um, there are basically three different ways that you can raise crops. Uh, the first would be conventional. Uh, there's not much conventional uh, raising of crops anymore. It's um, you know, application of pesticides once in a while and tilling the soil. Uh, then there's GMO and glyphosate. Um, and I'll come back to glyphosate over and over again. You may know glyphosate by the term Roundup. Um, that's most of uh, the crop raising in our country today is GMO and Roundup ready crops. And then there's organic and non-GMO. It's really difficult in our country to separate between uh, conventional and organic because, I, I mean conventional and GMO because there's no labeling laws. Uh, what we find, if, if you can separate it out, is that conventional isn't too bad if you use a few pesticides, but GMO and, and glyphosate, as you will see, can cause more problems. Now, there have been some really good studies on um, the various uh, ways of raising crops, and uh, there's been quite a few other studies that look at this as well. Uh, the important thing to remember is that there is a lot of um, difference of opinion that happens to um, sort of influence the outcomes. Uh, you know, conventional raising of crops, GMO raising of crops versus organic is sort of like medicine. Uh, you have lifestyle medicine and you have traditional medicine. In lifestyle medicine, uh, as Ellen White put it, in the case of sickness, the cause should be ascertained, unhealthful conditions should be changed, wrong habits corrected, uh, then nature is to be assisted in her effort to expel impurities and reestablish right conditions in the system. That's, that's lifestyle medicine. 
uh, as I point out when I'm lecturing to my patients, when's the last time you went to the doctor, he diagnosed you with hypertension, and he sat down with you and said, now, let's see what the problem is here that we can correct so we can get this blood pressure down. Usually what the doctor does is takes out the prescription pad and writes out an antihypertensive and then takes this, it gives this to you and, and you take it. That's like conventional farming. Conventional medicine and conventional farming is, well, we've got a disease state. What chemical can I use to fix it? Uh, we don't do that in lifestyle medicine, or there's a new branch of medicine now called functional medicine. Uh, and you can think what you want to about that, but their intent in that, and there's a lot of mixture in that, but their intent is to find out what the problem is and fix it so that the organism can get healthy and nature can take care of itself. And that's really the difference in philosophies between conventional farming and organic farming. Organic farming seeks to improve the soil or to, to take out the, the toxins in the soil to support the plant. And uh, my, wife, uh, my wife's sister, uh, her family that she's married into raises organic walnuts in Northern California. And they are always examining their soil and seeing what they need to add to it to keep the, the trees as healthy as possible so that they can resist disease and produce wonderful walnuts. Whereas, you know, a couple miles down the road, they say, well, this plant's getting this disease and so it needs this pesticide or this herbicide or this fungicide. And it's just like traditional medicine. You have this disease, you need this medication uh, versus well, you have this disease, I wonder why you have it, now let's correct the problem. So that's sort of the difference between the, the two branches of uh, raising uh, crops. Now, uh, in the last, uh, if you look at, at online or any reference, you will see a large number of articles supporting both methods of treatment of plants, just like you do in medicine. Uh, many of the articles in support of uh, the raising of conventional crops uh, or crops using conventional medicine and GMO and the use of glyphosate or Roundup uh, were very supportive of it and they uh, were not as supportive of organic methods in years past. If you look at a survey of the literature in the last two to three years, mostly the last two years, the balance is starting to tip as more and more information gets out and it's leaning more toward a organic non-GMO method of raising crops. Um, I'll give you an example of that. If, if we look at um, nutritive quality, how many of you read the Annals of Internal Medicine uh, article, September 2012? Anybody read that? Okay, well, at least one person was alert to the fact that there was a, a, a critical article there. In that article published uh, in Annals, uh, the research or the, the paper was from a group at Stanford. They said there is no, no difference 
qualitatively between the nutritional uh, content of food raised with conventional methods, GMO food uh, and uh, pesticides, and organic food. And what that was is a review article. They actually didn't do any research. They just looked at all the papers that had been published, and they said there is no difference except in one area, and that said that was that the pesticide levels were higher in conventionally raised crops, and you'd expect that. And they went on to say that this is probably uh, not important because uh, the pesticide levels were likely within the acceptable range of toxicity. Uh, we do the same with medication when we're treating patients, right? We know that medications have toxicities, but we say, yeah, they do, but they don't happen very often, and they probably won't affect you. And uh, so we use statins, and, and you know, I'm sure, that uh, no athlete would use a statin, right? Do you know that? Why? It decreases their muscle strength, and no, no ultra-athlete would use a statin because their muscle strength goes down. Of course, we don't think about that in the average per person because we have more muscle strength than we need until you get to the elderly, and there's good data that you probably shouldn't use statins in people over 85 because then a little bit of muscle strength may be the difference between falling and breaking a hip and not. Same idea goes with um, when we're dealing with toxins and pesticides. Well, if you're young and healthy and you're not going to have kids, and, but if you're in the childbearing years or if you're elderly, so you have to play all of this in when you're thinking about toxicities. Uh, interestingly, another study was just published in August of this year, and that was in the British Journal of Medicine. Uh, August 2014, and they did another uh, meta-analysis and review of all the studies looking at uh, the uh, question of nutritive quality of organic versus non-organic raised, and they came to the opposite conclusion. Now, it's interesting to, re to uh, look at the... Um, the blogs on this article, because you have all of these uh, people saying, oh, the uh, publishers of that article are just a bunch of organic greenies, and they clearly have a vested interest. Um, but wait a minute, let's follow the money here. How many organic growers do you know that have as much interest in uh, their product financially as the GMO group does. Um, you've heard of, of uh, glyphosate, right? How many pounds of glyphosate were spread in this country in 2010? Any clue? A lot, okay. Well, in, in 1987, 1987, there was 5,000 pounds of glyphosate spread in this country, 1987. In 2010, there were 185 million pounds spread 
in this country. And we're going to come back to glyphosate, but the reason I bring that up at this point is, is there potentially more money invested in one side than the other? We, you've heard the, the, uh, the little saying, we have the pot calling the kettle black. And that's not what's happening here, because you have huge money on one side accusing the other that has very little money uh, in, involved of being a vested interest. What we do have in these two camps is personal philosophy that's very different. Just like there's a difference in personal philosophy between conventional medicine on the one hand and lifestyle medicine on the other. Now you can blend the two of those fairly effectively, but uh, there's still a difference in personal philosophy. And uh, you could say that the people that are raising crops organically uh, have uh, some personal philosophy and reason why they interpret things the way they do, but certainly not the money that's behind the uh, big growers of, uh, or I should say providers of GMO and uh, glyphosate foods. Um, let's uh, just take a moment and uh, talk about uh, just what's uh, involved here. There are many pesticides on the market and uh, there are several GMO foods, but I want to spend the rest of the time until the question and answer on just two things. One, glyphosate, and the other, uh, Roundup Ready crops. Uh, Roundup Ready, Roundup is a type of glyphosate, or I should say glyphosate is in Roundup, along with some other uh, quote, inert ingredients that I'll come to. 90% of GMO crops today are Roundup Ready crops, 90%. The other percentage is largely BT Ready, or not BT Ready, but BT Infused GMO. But we're going to stick to Roundup Ready crops. All of those are produced by one company, and that company is Monsanto. Uh, glyphosate is an interesting uh, compound and uh, we should probably understand a little more about glyphosate before we get back to discussing the Roundup Ready and how that works. Glyphosate was first discovered in 1964 and it was marketed as a chelator. Now I'm sure you're familiar of what a chelator does. It binds minerals in particular. And glyphosate was noted to bind the cations that have two positive charges, like calcium and magnesium and iron and uh, copper and zinc. Uh, it was, had a particular affinity for those metal or mineral ions. Uh, and it was marketed as a chelator, and it was known as a strong chelator. It wasn't until 1974 that John Franz discovered that it had another uh, effect or another property that he found very interesting and won quite a, f a few awards as a result of this discovery. 
And that discovery was that it interfered with the shikimate pathway of the production of uh, uh, aromatic uh, amino acids. Now, the reason this was so important is you and I do not have the shikimate pathway. We have to eat those aromatic amines in our diets. But plants have that shikimate pathway. And if it could be blocked, then you could block the growth of that plant. Not only does it have a direct effect on the enzyme uh, that converts shikimic, uh, sorry, shikim, uh, to shikimate, uh, it's shikimic acid to shikimate, it, it blocks that enzyme, but it does it specifically because that enzyme requires manganese for the conversion, and manganese is also tightly bound. So it has a double effect. It blocks the enzyme directly, and it affects the uh, manganese that's involved in catalyzing that enzyme reaction. Uh, when he found this out, immediately he thought, now this is a wonderful compound because it won't be toxic to mammals. And in fact, it isn't very toxic to mammals, at least acutely. The LD50 of glyphosate is about 150 mLs. That is, if the average uh, male drinks 150 mLs, you say you had 100 of them, 50 of them would die from it. Uh, if you read the literature on the acute toxicity from glyphosate, um, you find that uh, there is no medical treatment. And if a person consumes 300 mLs of glyphosate, uh, they all die. Uh, it, it just, they're gone. It, you get respiratory collapse, you get hemorrhage, and it's a nasty, nasty chemical if you consume that much. But that's a large dose of a toxin. Uh, many things are much smaller dose and it will do you in. So it's a relatively safe uh, uh, chemical as far as LD50 is concerned in acute toxicity. But remember that uh, this interesting compound has some other effects besides blocking the shikimate pathway. It also is a chelator as I've mentioned and it's a very strong chelator. Uh, and it has other effects on the human body as well. It, um, I'm glad you're looking it up there. You find what I'm talking about. It's right, you can, you can look it up uh, on several links and I'm happy for you to do that and check me on my facts here. Uh, it also affects the P450 cytochrome system. Now, how many of you remember all the details of the P450 cytochrome? Yeah, good, good, that's right. It's one of the most important uh, systems in the liver. Uh, it's called P450 because it absorbs a, a wavelength of light at about 450 uh, nanograms, is it? Do you have it there, of wavelength? But it involves a huge number of uh, cytochromes. And Glyphosate is a P450 inhibitor. 
In fact, as a result of that, it does two very interesting things among others. One, uh, chronic uh, exposure to glyphosate uh, interferes with the production of testosterone, estrogen, and vitamin D, uh, vitamin D3 specifically. It also has another effect in that it inhibits uh, the detoxification of what are called xenobiotic uh, toxins. That is, toxins that come from outside of us in. In order to get rid of those toxins that we ingest, the liver has to change them to make them less toxic before it excretes them. And glyphosate inhibits that uh, system that detoxifies that, that we use to detoxify uh, toxins that come from outside of our body. So it has some interesting chronic effects um, that take a while to show up. Now remember that in 1987 there were only 5,000 pounds of this stuff sold, which isn't very much. Uh, it wasn't until around uh, 1996 that it started to be used in large amounts. Uh, the reason is it was in 1996 that Monsanto released the first Roundup Ready crops. Now what does Roundup Ready mean? It means that they had taken a seed and changed the, the uh, DNA properties so that this plant could now resist the effect of the uh, glyphosate. It could make the needed amino acids by a different pathway. Uh, interesting how they engineered it, but one of the reasons they pushed so hard to develop these seeds is this glyphosate was becoming very lucrative to them from 1987 to 1996, the use of glyphosate had skyrocketed, and they knew that in 2000, their patent would expire. However, they did something very clever, and that is they said, now with these new seeds, in order for us to guarantee that they'll work, you have to use Roundup Ready brand glyphosate. So they ensured that as long as those seeds were under patent, which is much longer for a genetic patent than it is for a chemical patent, that they would have the corner on Roundup. Uh, I, Monsanto is a very bright uh, company. Uh, you can call them evil if you want. I don't choose to. I ch uh, choose to think that they were uh, motivated by profit, just like many of our companies are in this country today. Unfortunately, when you have profit as the primary motivation, you also need controls, uh, which uh, haven't come into play largely as of yet. So you have this uh, glyphosate, which doesn't have a big problem acutely, but there are some questions about possible long-term uh, complications. Uh, 
we didn't see these initially and you wouldn't expect to. But over time, we started to look at uh, possible uh, diseases that might um, be as a result of glyphosate. Uh, I want to tell you a number of stories now uh, that I uh, uh, got from Dr. Michael McNeil. I referenced him earlier. Uh, in his agricultural uh, business, he, um, of course, is a consultant, and he uh, uh, told us several um, things that had happened to him in his business. Uh, and I'll tell these to illustrate the various um, problems with glyphosate. Uh, one day, a uh, farmer walked into his office, and he, uh, he shut the door to the office, and then he looked around, and he said to Dr. McNeil, you have to promise me that you tell no one that I've been in your office today. And Dr. McNeil thought that was a little strange, but he said, all right, I'll promise that I, I tell no one that you've been here. Remember that Roundup Ready crops were not marketed until 1996, and that's just a short time ago in my way of thinking. I'm, you know, at that age. That wasn't long ago, was it, Bill? <laughs> no. Uh, so this happened uh, just a few years ago. This, this guy was a corn grower. And he said to Dr. McNeil, I've been growing Roundup Ready corn for the last 10 years. Every year I grow corn. I have 10,000 acres under cultivation. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm very good at what I do at raising continuous corn. He said, I've been getting uh, about 300 bushels an acre. That's a lot of bushels per acre. And I got that year after year for the last 10 years until two years ago when my yield started dropping off. He said it dropped to 200. He said last year it was 150, and this year, I think at best I'm going to do is 65. He said, if the people I rent land from hear what I've done to their land, I will not be able to rent anymore. He said, can you help me? He said, well, we'll see. So he went out and he examined the land. He did some testing and he found that what had happened after 10 years of continuous heavy use of glyphosate in the form of Roundup, the minerals in the soil had almost been completely chelated. So there was very little mineral available to the plants. So he said to the farmer, we can deal with this, but it's going to be very expensive. The farmer said, whatever it costs, if I don't fix it, I'm out of business and I've ruined the land that I'm renting and that will be one lawsuit after another. And so they started applying huge amounts of these chelated minerals because a chelator can only chelate so many and then all its sites are filled and then it has no more effect. So they 
super fertilized with minerals. And over the next two or three years, uh, in my last communication with Dr. McNeil just uh, last week, he notes that his corn production is back up. But at what a cost. That's what happens with chelation. Now, if you look up on the internet, you will find the half-life of glyphosate is interpreted variably. In some places, it says that it's 45 days. Other places, it'll say that it's 197 days. It's a huge range, but that's acceptable. In other places, it says that the half-life of glyphosate is two years. But according to Dr. McNeil and uh, also Don Huber and others, the half-life of glyphosate as a chelator is up to 20 years, 22 years. Uh, now, the reason for that is when it, it, it is fully bound to the minerals in the soil, it does not deteriorate nearly as fast. So the half-life is difficult to, uh, to say for sure how long it is. They said that one of the reasons glyphosate was so safe is that it didn't migrate down into the water, the groundwater. The reason it doesn't migrate is because it binds so tightly to the minerals on the surface of the land. It only goes down about six inches because it's bound so tightly to the minerals in the soil. It is water soluble and the top layer does go off into streams and ponds, uh, but there the half-life is shorter uh, than in soil. So that is one of the problems with glyphosate is that it interferes with the minerals and their bioavailability to the plants. But now we get to the first thing about healthy soil, healthy people. If the plants can't absorb those minerals and we eat those plants, do we have less minerals? Uh, the answer is yes. There uh, was a study published in June of this year uh, and uh, they showed that indeed there are lower levels of these important micronutrients in crops that are raised with the uh, glyphosate and Roundup Ready crops. Now you say, well, why, did, why was this developed in the first place? And I just want to step back for a moment and, and, uh, and tell you that, that the development of Roundup Ready crops was not all bad. You see, we know that every time you till the soil, you cause some deterioration, some decrease in nitrogen. And what they were using glyphosate for is called the no-till method, where they'd go in and they'd spray the whole field and burn down all the weeds. And then they'd come along with a seed drill and drill the uh, seeds into the ground and then the seeds would come up and weeds would come back, but the crops were Roundup ready so they could spray it again with Roundup, kill the weeds down again, but the crop that they were trying to raise did not, was not killed. And so this was 
sold as a wonderful way to preserve the soil and actually had an element of truth in it because the no-till method does preserve the soil. Uh, I'm sure that Dr. Dysinger's children have uh, played around with no-till method using mulches, right? Because when you do a no-till method, you preserve the soil structure and there are some benefits to it. So don't think that Monsanto was out to be all evil. They weren't. This was a potentially really good idea to preserve soil because you wouldn't have the runoff that you get with the till method. And uh, there was real potential here, but as you're going to see, there were some downsides. Uh, Dr. McNeil was also uh, called by his neighbor. Uh, his neighbor said to him, you know, I've been raising cattle for years. He said his neighbor was in his 70s. He knew the cattle business very well. And he said, something has happened to my animals. Usually, if you raise a steer, how many of you have raised cattle or, or yeah. If you raise a steer from when it's very young, from when it's just uh, born, you get it in young, they're like pets. They're not mean. You can walk out, you can slap them on the side. They're, they're really docile. We had calves when I was growing up, raise them, and, and you know, you didn't ever have to worry about being trampled by them or anything of that nature. Uh, the, the guy called up uh, McNeil and he said, um, something's wrong with my cows. I can't trust them anymore. I cannot go in the pen anymore without being very careful that they don't trample me. He said, in fact, I never go into the field anymore except on my tractor. Whereas I used to walk in the field all the time. And he thought this was very interesting. He couldn't figure out what was happening. And the guy said, the other thing I've noticed is they have diarrhea. A few uh, months later, his brother was trampled by his hogs and died. And in questioning the family, he said, yes, the hogs have been acting very strange. They've been very irritable. Hogs, too, usually are not mean if they're raised carefully. They're, they're very docile animal. So he started doing some studies, autopsies. And he found, and he showed us pictures of this, that the, the stomachs and the GI tract of these animals was very inflamed. Well, let's stop a minute. The shikimate pathway is not found in humans, but it is found in bacteria. Have you ever heard of probiotics? How many of you had heard of probiotics 20 years ago? You had. Were they marketed as they are now? No. What happens when you have chronic low-grade exposure to glyphosate is you change the entire, entire microbiome, the gut bacteria change. And it just so happens that the beneficial bacteria in the animals and your gut are more susceptible to glyphosate than 
the pathogenic bacteria. The least susceptible happens to be the Clostridia family. The next least susceptible is the Pseudomonas family. And it's interesting, the Pseudomonas family, when they metabolize, uh, when, when they make the uh, aromine, aromatic amines using a different pathway, a byproduct of that pathway is the production of formaldehyde. Not particularly good for the organism and certainly we know is irritating to the GI tract. Do we have any GI doctors here? No? Surgeons that do endoscopies? Okay. Have you noted in the literature any increase in the incidence of inflammatory bowel disease? Yeah. Is there a connection? No one knows for sure, but it is highly suspect. Because if you change the microbiome and you decrease the beneficial bacteria and you increase the toxic bacteria like the clostridia, you're headed for trouble. So when we're dealing with glyphosate, which has a very low, L, or I should say a high LD50, it has a low toxicity acutely, we can't write it off completely because we have more bacteria, bacterial cells in our body than we have of our own cells. Did you know that? And that affects us tremendously. In fact, much of our digestion is absolutely dependent on our GI flora, particularly in the colon, particularly with, yes, George. We're coming to it. Okay. The, the plants have almost none in it unless they are Roundup Ready crops. And what's really happened in the, in the last five years is glyphosate resistance. And so now we have super weeds that have been developed and the levels of glyphosate used in, our, uh, in the production of uh, our plants is much, much higher than it was originally. In fact, um, they recently raised the allowable level of glyphosate in plants from 0.5 parts per million to 20 parts per million. And the only reason they did it was not because it was shown to be safe, but rather because that represented the level that was now needed in order for them to continue spraying at an effective level. So we have a new level of accepted toxicity based on what's in the plant, and that can be up to 20 parts per million. What we find is if you regularly consume 20 parts, if you regularly consume parts per billion, three to five parts per billion, that's enough to adversely affect the GI flora in your gut. Thank you for that. Okay, we're, we're going to get to exactly which foods are Roundup ready and, 
and those that are, they use uh, Roundup for. But a, a few more stories first. Okay. Uh, some years later, uh, actually this was about five years ago, Dr. McNeil received a call from a Mennonite community in uh, southern Illinois. And uh, he said, um, how can I help you? They said, well, we've got a problem here because we have had no live births in our women for the past three years. Now, those of you that know about Mennonites know that this is catastrophic because they have large families and they depend on those families in order to work the farms. So he went up to uh, that area and uh, he uh, looked around and he found that the whole community was getting milk from the same farm. And so he went to the farm and he asked the farmer what he fed his cows. And the farmer said, I feed my cows soybean meal. And he said, well, what kind of soybean meal? He said, well, I can get it cheaper if I buy SDS soy. Now, you may not be familiar with that term, but it's important for you to understand it. That's sudden death syndrome soy. Uh, sudden death syndrome soy is a, a disease that um, the plants grow almost to maturity. And then just weeks before harvest, the farmer gets up one day and the entire field has turned brown. Uh, the beans are still largely developed, just not completely developed. It is no longer acceptable for use as human food. He doesn't want to lose his entire crop, so they grind it up for animal feed. And it's cheaper than uh, regular soy because it didn't quite reach to maturity. So I said, well, that's interesting. I think that should be studied. And so he wrote to the FDA for a grant, and the FDA said, well, I think that's an anomaly. We don't have any funding for that. Uh, later that year, he got a call from Kentucky. And uh, they said, uh, we've got a real problem in our racehorses. Uh, could you come down and, and help us? Our racehorses are dropping their foals. They're miscarrying. They're having stillborns and would you come down and examine this? So he went down, and you guessed it, they were feeding their racehorses SDS soy. So he wrote to the FDA again, and they said, this sounds like a real problem. We should probably study this thoroughly, and he received some grant money because those are a uh, million dollars a pop or so, some of those racehorses. When I uh, gave the conference with him two years or a year and a half ago, he had identified the causative agent of the SDS soy as far as he, he showed us uh, electron micrographs of it, but he was not sure what it was. He said the same thing is happening with Goss's wilt. He said Goss's wilt affects corn, and when I was growing up, he said, uh, we'd see maybe one or two plants in a whole field that would have Goss's wilt. But now in Nebraska, he said, there are huge areas affected with this where the corn will almost reach uh, maturity 
and then overnight the whole field is gone to Goss's wilt. And so he was interested in that as well uh, and uh, started studying that, though he wasn't sure of the cause. Uh, but this is an interesting problem because uh, with Goss's wilt you, uh, and SDS soy, you have a disease that's affecting the plant that then affects the animal that then affects the human. So we have a disease that's moving from plant to animal to human. Um, that is, uh, in his words, potentially apocalyptic. That's the word he chose. Well, I just talked with him two weeks ago, and it happens to be that that's caused by a plant prion particularly affecting plants that have deficient mineral availability. So my advice to you is uh, those of you who are in the uh, age of having children, avoid SDS soy, that is only organic soy, and only organic corn. I, I would strongly encourage you to do that. Uh, the other thing that's important about this is um, plant prions can't be killed, can they? Do you remember the mad cow disease? Um, we got a real problem on our hand. Um, and it isn't easily solved. Uh, there was a conference in Colorado that he just attended, and I'm getting all the information from him, hopefully within the week. I had hoped it would be here by then, but he simply told me this. When I gave the conference a year and a half ago, I thought the news was terrible. The word he used was apocalyptic. He said it's worse than we thought, uh, based on the use of glyphosate. So... I'm almost out of time, here's my advice. The crops that are heavily sprayed with um, glyphosate and are Roundup ready are primarily cotton, cotton seed oil, corn, and soy. The other ones that have glyphosate used but are not Roundup ready are wheat, and potatoes. Potatoes, they use it to desiccate the plants. In northern, my wife and I live in Maine, and in northern Maine, just before potato harvest, they spray the entire field with glyphosate to desiccate the plant. It hardens the skin of the potato and makes it much better for transport. Uh, so those are the ones that you need to be concerned about. Now remember, corn involves corn syrup. And if it isn't uh, in your consciousness, corn syrup is in almost everything. Okay? The chips that we ate today... And the corn tortillas, unless they said organic, were not.
corn and soy are your big ones. And I would strongly encourage you, particularly with corn and soy, organic. Now, to make it simpler, vote for GMO labeling. Because we know now that conventionally raised crops, when we're not using glyphosate, are really very similar to organic in their nutritive quality. There are problems, but they're not as big as the ones that would come with glyphosate. So the simplest answer would be uh, GMO labeling. Uh, as you may know, in Oregon, uh, they are having a vote on this in a few days. And uh, you might not be surprised to know that Monsanto has dumped a ton of money into that to block that. Coca-Cola has as well. Why? Corn syrup. And their price would go up considerably. Corn syrup, as you may know, now is 50% of the sweetener that's consumed in this country today is corn syrup. Uh, about half uh, is corn syrup. Uh, and that causes a whole host of problems that George can talk to you about another time with uh, fatty liver and uh, diabetes and on it goes. But um, questions? Yes. Um, I don't think there are any good studies in humans to tell us exactly how much of an effect that is, but we do know that there's a problem with vitamin D deficiency. Part of that is because our uh, dermatologists have told us to stay out of the sun, and that's not all bad advice, but part of it we think is likely related to the, uh, the inhibitory effect on the, uh, the uh, cytochrome P450 and the, the uh, synthesis of vitamin D. Pardon? No, but this is in cholesterol synthesis, and it and, uh, also affects um, the uh, estrogen. There's another thing that it's been shown to, um, to uh, foster the growth of breast cancer. And that's not in humans, but in vitro. If you take breast cancer cells, expose them to glyphosate, they grow much better. John. There, there's a whole lot of studies about glyphosate and autism. I did not touch on those because I think that the people that are dealing with this problem have sort of overreached themselves. There's a great review article uh, by um, Senef. She's a professor at MIT on this whole issue of glyphosate toxicity. But my own opinion is she may have overreached a little bit because she says that all chronic diseases that we're, we have are likely related to, and she mentions uh, autism as well. I, I think what we're going to find with autism, like coronary disease and diabetes and some of the others, is that they are an expression of multiple causations. And glyphosate exposure may be one of them, but I don't think it's the sole exposure. I have sole reason for that. Well, 
And thimerosal is another uh, one of the, uh, the mechanisms that's suggested as causing autism is thimerosal exposure. There are multiple um, explanations for autism, and probably we're going to find that many of them are correct. And it may be thimerosal, it may be glyphosate, it's probably a combination of all of those. Autism is another one of those diseases that is, is tragic and growing. Right now in the U.S., it's one in 50 children get autism. And that is terrible. John. <laughs> so, so you can tell them what I say, and that is this. One study looked at the people on aircraft carriers, the ones that worked on deck versus the ones that were down below. Who had the highest melanoma rates? The ones that worked below. It is not sun exposure per se. There's a physician at uh, Harvard who says sun prevents 50 to 100 times as many cancers as it causes. And you can quote me on that because I'm not a dermatologist. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.